Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Ryan Bott to the show. Ryan, welcome. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Ryan is the Global Vice President of Inside Sales at Sodexo. They're actually the 17th largest company in the world, and they service employee experience, uh, which means uh, all things around food and facilities and HR management. Ryan, just so people know, like, what is a good example of where Sodexo would have been lurking in the background? Churros. If you had churros in college, you know, you had your student meal. We're on college campuses, we're in hospitals, we're in universities, we're in stadiums, like you mentioned. So if you went to the Super Bowl, you had that good fortune, you, all the experience there, all the food would have been uh, through us. We had the first female chef ever at a Super Bowl. But also, if you, you know, your, your HR teams are running employee experience uh, surveys or they're doing recognition programs, for example, saying thanks at work. We, we run a lot of that as well. So I get to know you a little better and the audience can get to know you. I always love to know what is one of your favorite sales books of all time and something you learn from it. Wow. Sales books of all time. You know, I, Jeremy, I'd have to say The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, famous investor, famous Silicon Valley icon. That book hit me more than any other at a time I needed it. I was VP of sales at a startup. We were going through some really tough times. And, um, and honestly, it's sort of what transitioned me from a beginner leader, kind of an okay leader to a better leader. You know, only my teams can vouch if I'm a great leader now. But that is one that just kind of got me through and said, okay, Ryan, we can do this. You've got to make tough decisions. And that's how sales is. So why Intel? Intel had a channel sales operation function out, out of our way. So I, I live in Silicon Slopes, as they call it, out in Salt Lake City, Utah. We had a channel sales function out here. Everyone was building a PC back then and selling it. So you had sort of this barrage of white label. You know, anyone could order parts and put them together and sell them. So sort of a really interesting time. I remember one of the guys, he called me, one of our resellers, he called me and he said, hey, I'm, I'm putting together recording studio PCs for MBA all-stars. <laughs> what in the world? You know, but these were, I serviced channel, the, all the channel resellers and people were making money back in that time. It was super fun. It really helped me solidify the value of channel sales. We have not talked a lot about channel sales on the show. If you had to distinguish between direct sales and channel sales, what are some of the major differences in approach and skills and knowledge and so on? Well, the whole concept is so unique to me. So first off, I think any listener just needs to realize that you're never the only approach. You're never the only one going into that account. You know, there, there are people that are co-selling into that account or could be co-selling with you all around you. And so when you kind of get that concept in your head, you think, okay, so how do I how do I utilize that? How do I how do I take advantage of that and even impact my own business? So companies formalize that and they create channels, they create channel partners. As a seller though, you got to realize that you could start your own partner sales sort of anytime. You don't need a formal program. You can call people that like-minded fellow travelers, I call them, that are also going to that account and say, hey, let's collaborate. Do you mind working together? And so the whole motion changes because here's what we know. We know that there is no better way to get someone's attention than word of mouth. That's proven over and over and over again. So the reason I love partner channel, co-selling, whatever you want to call it, is the concept that word of mouth is going to go way farther than you trying to convince them. So if you're a seller and you're trying to get into that account 
and you're knocking on the door, knocking on the door, and you're not getting any traction, call someone who you know has been in there and ask them to give you a good word. Now, the risk is the person doesn't really know you. They're not sure they're going to give you a good word. Their neck's on the line for vouching for you. But if you can get that, you, you have an instant in. So you literally bypass months of knocking on doors because word of mouth just cut through it. Beyond connecting people on LinkedIn, what are some recommendations you give people to expand their networks? Yeah, so I got I, I love going to shows. You know, the, the conference shows, trade shows, you, you name it. Just tell your manager, look, I'm expensing 500 bucks. I'm not even going to get a pass. I'm going to get a hotel on a flight, and I'm going to go to the show, and I'm literally just going to hang around. And your boss is going to be like, "What are you? What are you talking about?" But go and just shake hands. Get to know everyone you can at that show, that conference. We're going to be back at shows and conferences at some point. So this advice is. You you know, that out of tune, right? It's just, it's amazing how far my career has gone because I literally just rubbed shoulders with this person, that person. And then then years later said, oh, you know, she can help me. He can help me. At what point did you transition from channel sales into uh, either direct sales or, or a different role? Well, I had had some direct sales out in the field. I was door-to-door direct selling alarm systems. That's where, in fact, <laughs> my first foray into direct sales was when I thought, there's got to be a better way. And that's what really pushed me towards partners. And so, you know, the, the those next couple of years working at Schneider Electric, American Power Conversion was what it was back in the day. And then Schneider bought it. Avanti was this company called Landask. And we built great partnerships with IBM and Lenovo. And then I got to this point where I said, I want to do something more. And you look, and the, I think one of the challenges that you have if you're in channel sales is you realize that the ceiling's a little bit limited. You know, it's not like you have 10 channel sales managers, 20 channel sales managers covering, say, for example, the US. You sort of have two. And it's an East and West. Why? Because it's a leveraged sales model. I don't need, you know, I don't need to break the country up into six regions or 10 regions and have sales managers and leadership in each of those. Channel's different. Channel's typically an overlay. So what I realized was, okay, I want to get into sales management. But direct selling has way more opportunities (laughs) in sales management. And I was also itching to figure out lead gen much better. And that's when I jumped. There was a little startup and um, just got to know him. And the chief revenue officer called and said, listen, I I need you to come run demand gen. Yes, leverage partners, but more so put into play this whole motion of back then we didn't even call them SDRs. We just said, you know, inside inside sales reps, business development reps, I think is what we call them. And this was early, right? I mean, these are sort of the early days of really figuring out that whole SDR motion inside of a CRM. What is the cadence? You know, there were only a handful of people doing this. Aaron Ross was one of them. And apart from that, it wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot. So I consider myself pretty early. I was a student of Aaron and really studied, you know, how, how does that hold Jason Lemkin? I really just kind of followed those two saying, okay, what are they doing? How do I figure this out? Now building out this SDR team, having never done that before, were there key learnings you had as you were building that team out that you've continued to leverage in your career since then? There have been a lot, actually. Thank you. Um, So one of them was the motion of cadence will always rule the day. And I'm such a believer of this. I remember staying with my CRM managers and they were on my team and I'm saying, okay, team, we've got to build out a cadence inside of a CRM. We've got to codify this. We've got to build an API. We've got to make sure this is connected. We've got to form the day for us an inside sales rep. <laughs> Little did I know, you know, companies like Salesloft actually did this and are making, you know, good money off of it and, and doing a fabulous favor to the world. Literally back then we tried to build this on our own inside of Salesforce. And so that was what was interesting is I, I realized back then cadence is everything. And what I love is the cadence now is it's an agency model, meaning I'm not going to tell you everything you need to do. I'm going to give you the framework. You're going to decide. 
you're going to help put the parameters in. You, you can call you know one of these six companies that just popped up, but by serving up intelligence around it, you're going to be way more effective. Four years at Fusion.io, you must have learned a ton about managing inside sales teams. So where, where should we begin there? We grew from 10 million in, in ARR when I joined to about 350 million in 20 months. It was just a rocket ship. And uh, we hired so many people. I actually was in charge of inside sales, inside channel sales. We had an inside channel team, all sales enablement. So what this meant was all productivity, uh, you know, training, onboarding. And we were onboarding 30, sometimes classes of 30 new sales reps a month. So, I mean, we sort of grew really fast, got to about 100 and, I don't know, 60-ish salespeople total inside, outside, and, and then SEs, sales engineers, uh, and then the whole sales ops support around that. I guess, first of all, what is or was Fusion IO? It was um, server-side flash storage. You know, back in the day, in order to balance your machine and to get the highest computing power, you had a processor and you had memory and you had a hard drive. And across servers, this gets layered out. So I can get quad processors, I can get lots of memory. I couldn't quite balance the hard drive. And the biggest reason why is because the hard drives actually are spinning disks and spinning disks hit the sound barrier. So if you want to have an explosion in your data center, have those disks spin faster. So there's a physical limitation that you literally couldn't pass with the disk. And the problem was we all had USB sticks. We all knew what flash was, but it was never server grade appropriate. It was just, there's too many dirty things with flash. So Fusion was the first one to build the software and the hardware together that said, we're going to clean flash. We're going to make it server grade ready. When they did that, no one else had done it. When they did that, it absolutely changed the game. Now you see it everywhere. But they were the first one to say, we're going to put it in the actual server at the heart of the, the motion. So memory, processor, and storage are all working together. And we're going to store bits and bytes there. And that changed computing power. I mean, Facebook came to us with a problem that said, people are uploading hundreds of millions of photos a day. You know, what can we do to stream that better? All we're doing right now is just throwing massive storage at it. And we said, well, actually, we could cut that in a third. The day we did that, Facebook cut us, you know, our first check, $80 million was our first check from Facebook. And that put us on the map. So it was a super fun, you know, IPO. Steve Wozniak was uh, someone I actually worked closely with uh, at times, but was part of our company. Just a, just a fun overall experience. Whether folks think about it or not, I mean, the reason your MacBook is so thin, the reason, you know, iPhones even exist is because that technology problem was solved and the ability to move from hard disk spinning media into flash memory is now just a sort of accepted thing, but it was a big deal in that time. So you're running all these different pieces, channel sales, inside sales, enablement. Did you have a favorite of all those functions? Yeah. Well, my favorite was sitting down with uh, Ray. Ray was my sales productivity leader. He ran all enablement training, onboarding. And that was just fun. He was so good. He understood the value of onboarding and training and, and really taught it to me. So we were able to hire him early and glean off of his expertise because it wasn't an area that I had had to scale before. I didn't own it at Intel. I didn't own it in the other places I was. This was the first time I had owned it. He was from the Philippines, great background, strong background in sales uh, from the Bay Area, and just came in and was such a humble teacher to me. You know, one of those, I, I became the student as his manager. So it was probably my favorite looking back. I also loved uh, target marketing. So we, we really got serious about ABM long before anyone called it ABM. <laughs> So we were focused on who are the 500 accounts that we have to close in the next 12 months. We made that our target exercise. We got all of the salespeople involved. We put targets out. We put 
pictures up in people's cubes and said, okay, we hit that. There's a hundred dollars and celebrated every time we, you know, we kind of crossed X's off on the paper. So those were two experiences that were really unique to me and, and made it super enjoyable. People continue to talk about account-based marketing or account-based everything. And yet, if you really look deeply, you see the sales team operating often very independently of the marketing team. Were there then or are, are there now, you know, at Sodexo, ABM plays that you run that you feel are tightly integrated? And, and what are some of the secrets to doing that? Yeah, here's the challenge with ABM. So the sources of ABM, uh, the sources of the target account list are varied. There's your biggest challenge. What I mean by that is sales team will always say, no, 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 I have the right targets. These are people I know. These are accounts I've sold into in my past. I've got this Rolodex. These are the people that should be on the list. Now, the challenge is when you have a target at Sodexo, we have a buyer's journey team. There are people dedicated to segment marketing. There are people dedicated to the product or the offer. And they say, based on all of that, this is the ICP. It all falls apart unless people come to the table and agree on the ICP. Ideal customer profile, when I say ICP. And uh, you know, Topo Group's done fabulous studies on the ICP, and, and they're probably the biggest champions of this. And that's where early on we made a breakthrough when we had we did le- we did lead with sales because we knew sales was just going to throw a fit. And sorry to say that, but you know, I manage these people; they were going to throw a fit if they didn't have the say. And so we said, okay, let's start with you. What's your list? And then we brought in. Interestingly, we had our QBR. Everyone was in the room. We brought everyone in and then we had products say, stand up and say, well, here's, here's where the product fits and here's the fastest way to sell it. All of a sudden, you saw the salespeople on their own crossing names off the list. Once we did that and were able to say, okay, these are the definitive 500 because we know what the product does and what the next offer is going to be and the next offer after that's going to be and the buyer journey and profitability margins, then you know sales was bought in. And that's when the magic happened. And we were quite successful at being able to just target really, really good accounts. I know Sodexo is truly a leader in empowering women. How did this become a priority for you? Somewhere inside of me, there's always been this idea that equality matters. Just fundamentally as humans, it, it just absolutely matters, right? So we as humans have to treat each other with kindness and respect and give each other chances. And it just breaks my heart around the world when I see people who are disadvantaged, so disadvantaged, right? So somewhere that started, you know, when I was at Fusion IO, I made sure I really tried hard to balance my team. But let me tell you, I'm living in Silicon Slopes and it's it's about as cookie cutter as you can get. And when I say that, I, I truly mean it. So, so if I look at our data, for example... We live in a state where, um, you know, 3% of our CEOs are women. That alone is a huge challenge. Our pay gap is the nation's worst. So, I mean, I'm growing up in a state where this just isn't a thing. And then to actually be able to promote women into leadership was a big challenge because we just didn't have that many in our workforce. So, so that's kind of where I'm growing up and I'm starting to see the difference in Silicon Valley. But even in Silicon Valley, I got to admit, you know, 2009 through 2012, and then I worked on, on up through 2014 in and out of Silicon Valley constantly. It wasn't a thing. I mean, people weren't that dedicated to this cause. So I get a call out of the blue one day and... It's a woman and she says, I'm making a change in my sales leader and uh, you've been referred to me. Now, I had a great opportunity. I was, I was in the middle of potential another IPO and I really thought hard about our interview and I called her back and I spent some more time with her. And the first thing I noticed is she was an amazing CEO. The second thing I noticed is she was a black female and it just hit me that I'm going to learn things about this and through this experience that I'm never going to get anywhere else. 
And even though I wasn't set to make as much money or have an IPO or, you know, potentially retire, all those crazy things we think about as leaders, I thought I'm going to get rich off of this experience. And it's an experience I'll never, ever regret. And it was my first two years here at Sodexo. That's that's who I was tutored by. It was an amazing CEO who gave me a perspective also of being a black female. And I learned things in that. I, I'll never learn anywhere else. Things like getting into an Uber where the Uber driver wouldn't acknowledge her and asking her, does that happen? Yeah, Ryan, it happens still. Having her walk me into our African-American leadership forum, which is this forum of our African-American leaders and being one of two white guys in the in the entire room of 200 in there having a sort of open mic, the question gets asked, who has been pulled over in their own neighborhood for no reason driving home from work? Every black person's hand goes up and except mine is a white guy. You know, I mean, it's an experience like that where I say, this is still America. It still happens. And by the way, those people have to come to work the next day or have to get home to their family. And now they're delayed a half an hour, sometimes an hour for no reason. That stress then comes into work with them. So it does impact our employees. We have, I think, the most comprehensive study on the planet about promoting women into leadership. And what we're talking about is a four-year study across 50,000 managers. And what happened when we made one key decision, we asked one key question. And the question was, at Sodexo, what would happen if we made sure that 50% of our managers were women? Across 50,000 managers, what would happen if 50% were women? And the results have just been crazy. It's been, it's been unreal. And, and the shift in the company, it's an amazing place to work. You guys are so huge that you have, what, probably 50,000 female managers now? We have about 50,000 managers total. The data was pretty rough. We were at about 22%, 22% female when we started back in 2014. We did two things that are very interesting, Jeremy. Is one is we said at our board level, we were at about 35%. The board members were women. And we said, okay, let's first bring parity to the board. So I credit the board because from top down, we did decide this is important to us. It's a value of ours. So we put a chairwoman, made a woman chairwoman of the board. She then started champion and started to help track this. Then from the ground up, we said, well, we can't promote. I can't open recs and have 50% women apply to all of them, right? Because in a lot of places, the skill set as a society, we haven't certain groups of people and some of them being female up in the skill sets that are needed. So what we did is we created a grassroots movement called SheWorks. And that was at the base level, countries all around the world, 80 countries we operated in, groups of women getting together to help each other learn, to facilitate leadership, to allow them to get the skills necessary to be promoted. That's made all the difference for us. So when we had grassroots from the bottom and we had top down from the board, our numbers are now just about 40%. We've made a huge improvement. I should, sorry, I should say we were at 28% is where we were in women in, in leadership. Now we're at about 40%. We haven't hit 50 yet, but we make sure every interview has women candidates, 35% women candidates. We promote as often and as many as we can, 14% higher employee engagement, 16.8% better in employee retention, 17% client retention rate higher. When the client was able to see parity, experience parity, they stuck with us 70% more of the time. Our new sales went up by 12%. Our accident rate went down by 12%. Our operating margins were 8% better. Now, operating margin is what we live and die on. So to have an 8% better margin there was unbelievable. It just shows you the value of this. But here's what we learned. 
we realized that it wasn't a systematic operation that changed this. The individual people, people like you and I, and all of the listeners here in these settings, when they care and when they do something, it makes a difference on that team. And so what we realized is the way to enable success for women came down to three things each individual could do. One is that you can uncover your own unconscious bias. We all have unconscious bias. An easy example of this is if I show you a picture right now of four medical professionals, and I have an Asian, I have an African-American, and I have an Indian, and I have an older white male holding glasses. And I ask you, who's the doctor in this picture? Assuming there's only one doctor, the rest are just other professionals. In fact, 68% of us, it's been proven, will look at the white male, and this is from kids on up, holding the glasses, older white male, and say, well, he's the doctor. That's unconscious bias. Welcome to unconscious bias. We all have it. That's an easy one. But every day we live in and operate based on these unconscious biases. Two was you got to remove the safety nets. What we mean by that is your brain wants to play it safe. Safety is linked to like-mindedness. So when you see an example of this is when you had to sit down in college every day, unassigned seats, or you go to your yoga class, or you go to church. These are unassigned seats. You show up and you tend to sit in the same darn seat every time. Why? It's not because you love that seat. It's because it's safe. Your brain plays it safe. It's like, it's like you, you're used to it. Every day we do this in hiring. I look, I'm sitting in an interview. I look across and I see, okay, he's wearing a, you know, U.S. soccer jersey. I love U.S. soccer. Therefore, he must be a great hire, right? I see that she's, she's got a tattoo on her left arm. That's interesting. I have a tattoo on my left arm. She probably likes kale just like I do. And therefore, she's a great hire. Our brains do this weird thing where we say it's safe because you look like me. And the third thing is the people that made the difference were those who created a culture of confidence. And confidence is especially important to women in leadership because so many of them have been mistreated and misaligned and pushed down. And so you get the women in the room who don't want to raise their hand, who don't want a voice because their entire life they've been taught, I don't have a voice. So you've got to foster that confidence by saying things like, you know, hey, Julie, I haven't heard from you in a while. You know, hey, hey, Leslie, can you, do you mind adding a comment on this? You know, I really want your opinion. I want your voice. And then when women are speaking and the guy decides to cut in and say, whoa, hold on, Jason. I want to, I want her to finish. It's things like that, that allow us to create confidence on our teams and allow especially women to have a voice. And so those are three things we discovered. It came down to the level of you and I, unconscious bias, removing those safety nets and creating this culture of confidence. Well, Ryan, I feel like I could talk to you all day. And if people want to learn more about you and or opportunities at Sodexo, what are the best ways to do that? Yeah, thanks. Well, what an honor, Jeremy. First off, thank you. I'm a big fan of your podcast. So to hear you say that's uh, very nice of you. Um, you know, just follow me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn most. I don't do a lot of other social channels. Email is ryan.bot at sedexo.com. LinkedIn's always the best way to get a hold of me. I, I do reply. I try my best to reply to everybody. And that's the best way. And I look forward to interacting. Thanks for everything you're doing to empower people of all stripes. So thanks, Ryan, for being on. Thank you, Jeremy. Have a great day. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.